Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and a little later in this programme, I'll be talking to Jonathan Glancy, who'll be telling me about his travels in Nagaland, a frontier province of India that few people have heard of, and even fewer visited. My first guest, Jane Harris, came into the Faber offices recently to talk to me about her new novel, Gillespie and I. Jane was born in Northern Ireland, but moved to Glasgow aged four, and it is in her adoptive and incidentally my native city, that this book is set. The year is 1888, and Glasgow is hosting the International Exhibition, showcasing all manner of wonders of the modern age. It's partly that exhibition which entices young, art-loving Harriet Baxter north from London. In Glasgow, she befriends the Gillespie family, in particular Ned Gillespie, father of a young family and a struggling artist on the verge of making a name for himself. As the months go by, Harriet becomes woven into the fabric of the family's life, but events are to take an increasingly sinister turn and lead to a shocking act and a criminal trial that rivets the attention of the whole nation. The events of Gillespie and I are recounted by Harriet several decades later, from the vantage point of old age. I asked Jane if it had been a particular challenge coming up with a voice for Harriet, given that Bessie, the narrator of her highly successful first novel, The Observations, had possessed such a strong, distinctive character. Well, I knew it would have to be a very different voice because obviously they're extremely different characters. One's English, one's of Irish, one's very highly educated, one isn't really educated at all. So they were, they were going to have to be very different. And I looked upon it as a challenge, I suppose, yes. I mean, in some ways I think of Harriet as being a smarter character than I am myself. So... In a way, that was a great challenge. And I did a lot of reading of uh, books from the period, quite a lot of Henry James, that kind of thing, to get into, you know, forming longer sentences, having quite good punctuation compared to Bessie, you know, and just being a little, making it all a bit more flowing. And uh, also with Harriet, she's quite pedantic in her punctuation and in the things that she picks up on so that was also a very different thing for uh, for the narrative voice do you remember what aspects of her character sort of first came to you how did how did she begin to take shape in your imagination a lot of my characters are sort of based on elements of people that i know there's never any it's never like one person is a character but i've sort of drawn elements from from different people and i also relied quite a lot on looking at paintings of the period and um, there's one in particular of a woman standing in a studio she's looking at some sheet music and she's got this half veil on and I thought that's a great image for how I see Harriet's maybe standing in Ned's studio so I had this sort of visual image of her and I pulled different elements from from people that I know and then tried to add in because I think she is pedantic but I, I do like to use humour, so I thought she has to have some sort of a little bit of wit and humour going on as well. So I tried to draw some of that in as well. And, um, you know, she's quite, in the way that Bessie can, can be quite scathing about other people, Harriet can be too. But she's very, she's very clever in that she often couches it in a way that doesn't seem like an insult. And I love people who do that. I love people who play those sort of horrible status games. I don't know why I'm saying I love them, I hate them. But, um, you know, people who can crush you with just one sentence. And I wanted Harriet to be, while still trying to make her likeable, I wanted her to be able to be the kind of person who could do that. Yes, she is a narrator 
one could say, who forces you to reread, who forces you to go back and reconsider, I think. Well, that's my, that's my hope, yes. Yeah, there are, there are elements of the story which are mysterious and uh, there's, a, there's, there's red herrings in there and, uh, and I've hopefully planted different clues about certain things. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, people will, when they reach the end, think about uh, going back, if not rereading the whole thing, then... Yes. Well, that's, that's certainly what I did. Uh, well, not reading the whole thing, but I went back and wanted to re-examine certain scenes and sort of, because by the time you get to the end, you do, you do want to go back and reconsider, actually, mm. what, what you've been told without, mm. without giving too much away. Mm. You set your first novel in the sort of indeterminate country between Glasgow and Edinburgh, but for both this one, you're resolutely in, in Glasgow. Mm. Tell me about, about sort of doing the research in order to create that Glasgow of the, the 1880s and the, the international exhibition, which is, is, is part of the, um, the focus of the, the early part of the book. Well, I did a lot of uh, paper-based research. I always spend a lot of time looking at maps. So I got lots of old maps, uh, Ordnance Survey maps of Glasgow and maps of the exhibition site. Um, and I probably spend longer than absolutely necessary staring at those in a sort of dwam, as we say. I don't, I don't, it's a state of daydream yes. for, for English listeners. <laughs> yes, and I don't quite know how that helps me, but it seems to sort of get me into the, the mode of the place somehow. Also for this, I spent a lot of time looking at paintings of the Glasgow boys, so, and again, I did most of that by looking at a great book by Roger Billcliffe, which uh, is uh, all about the Glasgow boys, and then another book about the Glasgow girls, which I found quite useful. So quite a lot of paper-based research, reading the catalogue of the exhibition and the adverts. But then I also did uh, go back to Glasgow, and I used to live in the West End, pretty much um, the street where Ned and Annie live. I lived just around the corner from that. Uh, it was my first flat ever when I was a student. So I could probably have seen their flat from where my flat used to be. And I used to go to student, really mad student parties in the street where they live, uh, which has now got a different name. It's a very run-down area. At the time I lived there, it was a red-light district, so it was all very grotty and exciting. And at the time that you're writing about, it would all have been quite new, wouldn't it? It would be sort of respectable um, families would be would be moving there from, and they would be quite quite recently built. Absolutely, that's right, because the city was beginning to expand westwards, and um, actually, the, where where the Gillespies live is is just on the border of one of the the most and probably still the most uh, sort of exclusive parts of Glasgow, near the right next to the park. Their actual street is um, is slightly down market, but still very respectable residents. So I went back, in fact I even, uh, having done a bit of research through 192.com, managed to get in touch with people who actually lived in that street and pestered them with letters and got invited into the house which, um, into the flat which uh, is the Gillespie's flat. So it was great to be able to actually get in there and they're quite unique flats because they have a, they don't, they're not just one story at the top, they have an attic which is very unusual for Glasgow. So they have an attic floor. So I was able, a very kind couple, let me poke all around their house. So that was really helpful. And I took loads of photographs. Same with uh, Queen's Crescent, took loads of photographs there. And then I also read lots of true crime cases from about the time uh, of, of uh, Gillespie and I. There's a couple of very famous cases of that time. One, in fact, which, uh, well, it's actually a bit later, but it actually takes place in West Princess Street, which is very near the... Um, the scene of some dramatic events uh, in Gillespie and I. 
and that was very helpful as well the language of the the way that the um, stuff about the court cases were written and uh, so yeah it was a there was a lot of research and I I usually start out with one folder for planning story and character and one folder for research and by the end uh, I had I think four of each like those box file folders just filled with my inane ramblings of you know what might happen in the story and then research which uh, you know some of it didn't even obviously end up in the book but you sort of have to do it so and you said that you think of Harriet as being smarter than you which is obviously not true but but it's an interesting remark so were the things that you discovered about Harriet as you as you wrote were the things that she as it were Mm. revealed as the as the novel unfolded or did you know by the time you amassed your eight box files did you know exactly where she was going to take you I think one thing I discovered was that I I was a lot fonder of her than I thought I might be um, I spent quite a lot of time there's a strand in the story which concerns her past and her father and I think in, in writing those scenes and in uh, sort of working on the story there I managed to find you know a huge amount of empathy for her and you know I think it's quite important to love your characters and um, I I do have, have a lot of a love for Harriet I have to say so yeah I think I found more love for her than uh, I thought I might initially have and did you sort of see it as a as an opportunity as it were the fact that that Victorian Glasgow is not is not written about in fiction as much as, as some other cities or some other times? Did it, did it feel relatively virgin territory to you? It did, I suppose. I mean, I did quite deliberately set the observations in a, in a sort of no-man's land or something to me that to me is a no-man's land. It was neither a, you know, a Highland novel, a Glasgow novel, an Edinburgh novel. With this, as soon as I made the decision to set it in Glasgow, which was quite early on, like in my my very first uh, note about the Gillespie and I was, is just like one line on a, a bit of paper that says artist Glasgow 19th century. I think that's what it said. You know, that is familiar territory to me. And I know there's not that much, um, you know, historical stuff about Glasgow at that time. There's a lot more about England, about London. But I don't, I don't know that I really looked on it as an opportunity. I suppose I looked on it as a, as, as a challenge, really, because in a way, Although I was born in Belfast, I did spend more of my childhood and growing up years in Glasgow, and um, it is my city. And I wanted to do it proud, you know what I mean? And I just, I hope I've done that. I mean, I really enjoyed all the stuff. The, 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 there's a lot of love for Glasgow in the book. Yes, I think that, I think that comes across. Mm. And even in the fogs or the, or the sound of foghorns and the Clyde on, on Hogmanay, things oh, like that. Yes, God, yeah, because that's a real memory from my childhood, because we lived uh, in a, you know, an estate not too far from the Clyde, although we didn't live in the city centre when I was growing up. And um, that was a very clear memory that you would open the windows at New Year and then you'd hear this very mournful sound of the foghorns. And you, I always used to think of oh, those poor men on those boats with these mournful old foghorns. So yeah, a lot, there's a lot of affection in it for Glasgow. Tell me what takes Harriet Baxter to Glasgow in the first place. As you say, she's, in, she's English. What, how, how does she come to be there in, in 1888? Well, her aunt, uh, who she lives with uh, in Clerkenwell, dies. And in the winter, Harriet has, has nursed her, but unfortunately she dies. And um, by the spring, I think she 
she's been through her morning and she feels that she needs a bit of a change of air. And so at the time, it would have been in the papers quite a lot about the preparations for the exhibition. And so I imagined that she would have seen that and thought, I would quite like to go there. And of course, you know, her relatives are Scottish. She does have roots in Scotland. Um, She's got a stepfather who lives near the city. That's right. Her stepfather lives near the city. And her mother's originally Scottish as well. So although she's not been there uh, as an adult. So I thought that's a nice reason to get her to go uh, up north. I can't quite remember what the decision was behind making Harriet an English woman. That's a mystery to me. I think it's partly to do with, you know, I was born in Ireland, brought up in Scotland. I've lived a long time in England. I think things are more fluid than people often think. You know, we're, we're never either, you know, we're never entirely one thing. And in a way to write an entirely Scottish book, uh, maybe I will do that uh, at some point, but Bessie was Irish in Scotland, Harriet is English in Scotland, and uh, I quite like mixing it up a bit. How big an event was the international exhibition? You mentioned that there would have been coverage in the press. I mean, how, how big a deal was it for, for Glasgow, which was then the, uh, the mm. second city of the empire? Oh, it was a huge deal, absolutely huge. Uh, people came from all over the world to that exhibition, and then there was a there was a bit of a competition going because I think I think Manchester had had a big exhibition the year before, and they'd had you know X thousand people go through the the gates, and there was a huge thing in Glasgow that we were going to have more visitors. So people bought these season tickets, and they would just go in one gate and out the other, and in one gate and out the other trying to make the same total as uh, or beat Manchester's record basically so um so yeah it was um it was huge i mean you can only enter into the world of 1888 so much in your imagination I, there's part of me that would quite like to be still in that world still you know with all the characters uh, but it's it's gone now it's in the book <laughs> i i loved um harriet's Stepfather as a character, I thought he was, he was very amusing, and I loved his dismissal of the exhibition as sideshows in sweeties. So yeah. that, that, was very, <laughs> that sort of sums something up. Tell me then how the, the title is Gillespie and I. Tell me how Harriet encounters the, the Gillespie family and becomes part of their world. Uh, she's not long arrived in Glasgow to see the exhibition, and she's window shopping one day in town and happens to come across uh, an elderly woman who's collapsed in the street and there's a young woman with her and Harry intervenes and manages to save uh, this woman who's who's actually in dire straits and because of that is invited to tea uh, at their house or at their flat and um, really it goes from there and then she realises that she's actually met the um, the husband of the young woman before um, at an exhibition in London and he's a struggling painter yes uh, and, and not, you know, not a man of, of wealth, of a wealthy background or anything like that. He's, he was, you know, his father ran a, a, a haberdashery, really, on the Great Western Road. You know, under any normal circumstances, he would probably have been serving behind the counter. But he had this artistic talent and ended up going to, they used to run these um, really early morning classes in the art school. So he went to those worked on his technique and uh, I think by the time Harriet meets them he's just been managing to make a living out of painting for about a year or so so he's at the, at the early stages It must have been interesting to investigate the art world, you mentioned the Glasgow Boys and it, it seems to be a, 
quite a small world, you know, quite a lot of infighting, certain amount of parochialism. But t- t- tell me what sort of tell me what sort of milieu it was in Glasgow in the, at that time. The Glasgow boys, they didn't start to be called that until some time later, as far as I'm aware. And quite a lot of them were, not, although not all of them by any means, but quite a lot of them were sort of sons of the manse, um, you know, or of merchants or whatever. So they had a little bit of money and were able to take the time and go and study in Paris. Some of them went to Paris, to France, to study at the art school. And so there were lots of friendships uh, between various of them. I think uh, Henry and Hornell is the most fam- famous uh, pairing and they went off to Japan together on an ill-fated trip for one of them I think Hornell wasn't it who who on the way back he um all his paintings that he'd done in Japan uh in the hold of the ship on the way back they all stuck together and so every single painting was ruined so and I don't think he and Henry got on quite so well after that because because Henry didn't. Henry made a huge success yeah. of his paintings and became very wealthy. Um, and poor Hornell couldn't didn't have anything to show for the trip. So there were all sorts of rivalries, and they were you know I've got stuff about cartoons being drawn of the various artists, and they would do that. They would draw cartoons of each other, and uh, you know they seemed to be fairly well known characters around uh, around the city. And Harriet decides that she wants to help advance Ned's career. Yes. She's a very helpful person. And um, she's not fabulously wealthy, but she's very lucky in that she has a, you know, a, an income and a little bit of money and is able to help uh, Ned and Annie out. And the, the first way that she does it, this is by... Um, initially, she wants to buy one of his paintings and then has the idea that ah, maybe he could paint one uh, paint me a portrait and in the end it's it's his wife Annie who's also an aspiring artist who actually takes on the commission to paint Harriet uh, and that's you know one of the ways that they they all get to know each other a little bit better. Now the Gillespie's have two children two daughters Sybil and Rose and they're a, a key part of this this story. Tell me about writing about children because you have a I'd say a distinctive way about about writing about children these are these are unusual children tell, tell me a little bit about these two girls. Well, that's Harriet writing about them. Uh, you must remember, it's uh, it's her point of view, um, and um, I suppose she has um, she has a particular way of seeing them. When she comes into the family, it's it's quite clear that there is a, uh, a what well, soon becomes clear that there is a problem with with the older child Sybil, who um, is quite badly behaved, and uh, after a little while, it becomes clear that she's perhaps you know more disturbed than than anybody uh, might have guessed i really quite enjoyed writing about the children because uh they're such great little characters there's moments like sybil running round and round and um her mum saying oh she's tired oh she's tired <laughs> and harriet saying oh quite so yeah i quite i quite had quite fun with that and and uh, describing her little Vampire-like teeth. Yes, that that yes, that, that thing, things like that quite early on in the book. Just start with me. That's a, that's, well, a, that's a good I was example. quite conscious that I should, um, you know, that there there is, as I've said, there's a mystery in the book, and I felt it was important to, um, well, portray Sybil in particular as a child who's not quite, you know, all sweetness and light. Yeah. So even slightly demonic, I'd say, in, in Harriet's rendition. I mean, there's, there's a scene mm-hmm. which which um, recurs to me now where. I think it's Annie and Harriet. I think it's during a portrait session, and Sybil is on the sofa and she's holding up a little mirror yes. from time to time so that she can keep an eye on things. So there's something quite sinister about her. 
Yes, I don't know where that idea came from, but I liked the idea that she was being sick on the couch, you know, in a sort of swoon. But at the same time, she has this little mirror and a stick and she's poking out so that she can keep an eye on her mother and this, this woman who's invaded her home. Now, you've got, a, you've got twin narratives running because you've got the story in the 1880s and you've also got Harriet's present, which is 1933, when she's sitting down finally to, to put together her memoir. Tell me what, what her life is like by 1933. What, what, what's preoccupying her by then? Well, by 1933, she's quite old. She's uh, almost 80. And she's a little bit less, well, quite a lot less able than she was and lives in a, the fourth floor of a mansion block in Bloomsbury. And the lift is a bit temperamental and she doesn't like getting in it in case she gets stuck. So she's uh, often a little bit, um, not, not entirely trapped because she can get out and about a bit, but she's not as free as she would like to be. And she has a companion assistant, as she likes to call her, Sarah. And so Sarah is really, uh, Sarah and uh, two birds, uh, two greenfinches, are her main companions really now in 1933. So in a way, it's, um, it's quite, a, quite a lonely life, perhaps. She's not, uh, her, her money uh, is still there, but she doesn't have as much as um, she might have had, I don't think, because perhaps her accountant didn't think she would live as long as she, she has done. So it's quite a solitary life and, and she's spending all her time writing this memoir now and Sarah is helping her by going off to the museum to do little bits of research for her. And you get little glimpses of how she might be seen by others when she goes to a greengrocer's and the greengrocer's boy calls to the, the shopkeeper says, the whiskey lady's here. So you get a, get a sense of mm. other, other perceptions of her. Well, that was one of the great challenges. Um, when you're doing a first-person narrative, um, you really only have that person's point of view on all the other characters. And, you know, in some ways, uh, we have Harriet's perspective on characters like Ned and Annie, but it's if you met Ned and Annie, you might think entirely differently about them than Harriet does. So it was an interesting challenge to try and get a perspective on Harriet without, you know, some authorial voice stepping in. So I, I have great fun with that, with slipping in little moments where in dialogue or in, in responses to things that uh, she says so that we get you know we build up a, a picture of her as well as what she's telling us it's mm. you got it just right you know because it, there's obviously a danger you could it could be too much you could turn it up too high you could turn it down so low that the reader completely misses it but it seemed to mm. me that you'd you'd struck a nice balance there oh that's good one of the other challenges is is knowing when to re reveal what in a story and um you know, that was one of the most um, painstaking thing, things in writing this novel, I think, was, was working on that kind of thing. Because without giving too much away, something dreadful happens mm. in the middle of the book. Mm. And the whole of the rest of the book is, is then shaped by, by that, that terrible event. Yeah. And by the time we get to the end, as we said earlier, we want to go back to the beginning and just re-examine that, 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 that whole sequence of, of mm -hmm. encounters and events. Yeah. Yeah, there is a, a very... Um, big dramatic event and I mean it's not giving too much away to say that it, the book does end in a court case because I say that on um, I think page one practically so um, it's all leading up to quite an extended court court case and um, you know that was one of the things that I had to do very very careful research on because you know I'm not a lawyer and uh, so that the last part of the book although a lot of the 
a lot of the content of what happens in the in in that I ha- I always had in my head. You know, I I sort of knew where it was going to end up. The actual blow by blow, minute by minute, working out of how you know how does that actually happen? What would happen in a trial? what order would witnesses be called and all that kind of stuff but I was very helped by a friend of mine who's a sheriff in Glasgow a judge and I I honestly I couldn't have written the book without her help because uh, I'd send her endless emails and she never lost patience (laughs) Tell me about comedy because there's definitely a a comic strain to this novel and at the same time you go into really quite, quite dark and terrifying places I suppose my favourite kind of writing is writing that manages both to be dark but is also comic. And I suppose I think that that's what life is like, really. And I like to be able to to try and render that in, in a story or, or in a novel. And um, it's quite important to keep me... I mean, not only narrative keeps you turning the pages, so I work very hard on narrative, but I think, you know, with uh, events as dark as happen in this book... I think you will, and, and the same for the observations. In fact, I think you have to have a, a some something of a, a lightness of a touch, otherwise it would just all become too depressing. I mean, I knew that in the observations, I knew I wanted to have a quite a comic narrator because otherwise the stuff that happens would just crush everybody. <laughs> and the same in this, um, I felt it was important to also for my own amusement. You know what I mean? You spend so long with these characters. And I like nothing better than to be writing a comic scene, I have to mm. say. So that's why there's quite a few of them. <laughs> there's quite, quite a few of them in the early part mm. of the book, but they get less and less as it mm. goes on. It struck me that even on even in the very first pages, there is a scene where Ned, the painter, is seen trying to steal back one of his own canvases. Mm. And when you read that the first time, it does seem quite a comic scene, really. But then, mm. in the light of what happens later, you go back, and it actually seems terribly poignant and tragic. Yeah. So it could, the same events can be can be viewed in in different ways. That's right, because we don't know enough at the beginning in order to understand how tragic that actually is, and also in the way that Harriet has described it and uh, the circumstances of it, which I, I won't say. But so yes, you you do view that completely differently um, if you went back and reread it. Jane Harris, Gillespie and I is out now in hardback. My second guest in this programme is journalist and broadcaster Jonathan Glancy. Jonathan is The Guardian's architecture and design correspondent. He has also had a fascination since childhood with Nagaland, a remote and, to foreigners, largely inaccessible state, tucked into the far northeastern corner of India. Created in 1963, the state is home to some 16 Tibeto-Burmese tribes, nearly 2 million people, many of whom have been fighting a little-reported war for independence, on and off, since the early 1950s. When we met, I began by asking Jonathan to sketch in some more detail about Nagaland. Nagaland is the most north-easterly state of modern-day India. Where is it? It's one of seven sister states. These are the states that project out on a long, withered arm from the top northeast corner of India, Many people will know, of course, Calcutta. So you just have to imagine yourself at Calcutta, traveling slightly north, and then the seven sister states with Nagaland at the far, far east stretch out over the top of what's Bangladesh and what becomes underneath Bhutan and then Tibet. And they reach out to China and Burma. So Nagaland is really 
in a sense, as close to China and Burma as it is to India. In fact, I'll correct myself, it is indeed right on the borders of China and Burma. And that's a very long way indeed from the great plain cities of India that most people know so well, Delhi, Bombay, Calcutta. And topographically, I think you refer to it as a sort of exotic or a tropical Switzerland in some ways. So what, what, is, what is the landscape like? Imagine Switzerland or the Austrian Alps, but a lot hotter. <laughs> Imagine them with rainforest down below around the rivers. But imagine, too, a tropical version with the, just the same kind of flowers that you will find if you went for a stroll with Heidi and her grandfather in Switzerland. It is an absolutely remarkable experience because these hills, which form part of the very far east of the Himalaya mountain range, uh, have a microclimate that's almost hard to believe, unless you're an agra, of course, and you're used to it. So you imagine a mix of rainforest, but Swiss mountains up above. Imagine deadly snakes and insects and bugs, and even tigers prowling around at one point. Leeches that stick to your legs and suck your blood out. A lot of big bugs, including, of course, mosquitoes that won't stop buzzing and biting you. But right up, you climb into hills which are cool and beautiful under vast great skies that really could be the Alps. And you already said that Nagaland is part of the, the, the political entity that is India, but in almost every conceivable way, the people are different from the broad mass of, of Indians. The heartbreaking side of my tale about Nagaland is this 60-year fight that Nagas have put up for their independence. There are many independence wars in the world. This one makes particular sense because the people are highly distinctive. Basically, there are 16 tribes living in an artificial state called Nagaland. An artificial state because Delhi created this in 1963 to contain the Nagas and said, you are now citizens of India, when Nagas had never been citizens really of anywhere. During the period of the British Empire, Nagas muddled along with the British one way or another. They were never, of course, British citizens. They were Naga tribespeople. One thing they didn't want to be was Indian citizens. When India became independent, the Nagas approached Gandhi, and they said, we want to be free. We don't want to be part of India. Gandhi said, I'll be very sad, is more or less what he said, I'll be very sad. If that's your choice, that's your choice, it's not what I would like, what, it's not what I would like. And they thought, great, we're free. But Gandhi was assassinated a few weeks later. Nehru, the first Indian Prime Minister, thought very differently indeed. Now he thought, of course, strategically as well as tactically, and he said, no, Nagaland, we need the Naga Hills. They will, this is where the Japanese tried to invade India in 1944. It was where the Chinese may well have invaded India in 1962. There was no chance the Naga Hills were going to ever be independent with the fears that Delhi had. So now the people live in this artificial state. And the great horror for them is that as soon as Nagaland, the state, came into existence and the people became Indian citizens, any act of rebellion against the Indian state was now treason. So they were its checkmate. They had suddenly become rebels and traitors, oh, and that was the last thing that was in their mind. So, so while 
in terms of its flora and fauna, it's it's a paradise. It's at the same time, it's a, geopolitically, it's a buffer state. And as you say, um, the Indians described it as a disturbed area. They classified it as a disturbed area, and and that that seems particularly telling. It seems very sad to call a place a disturbed area. A disturbed area also allowed Delhi, under various draconian acts of parliament, to go in with shoot-to-kill policies. Uh, Delhi was determined that Nagaland was going to be a buffer zone state. And you can see why. I mean, they did have this tremendous fear, and they still do, both of invasion from some enemy who could be the enemy? I mean, obviously, China looms large. Um, there's always that fear of someone from outside trying to break into Indian borders. So it means the poor place has become militarized on all sides. And so a place that is supremely beautiful. And that's what, throughout the book, I keep trying to remind myself and hopefully readers that if only you could walk with me up in these hills, anyone that loves walking in hills in any part of the world would be utterly delighted. They would find the people they met too, on the whole, delightfully charming, with a tremendous sense of irony and humour. Um, that's a great thing. So walking through, if you could, would be wonderful. The reason you can't is because Delhi doesn't want any of us walking in those hills because it thinks we're all, or if we're not drug runners, we're going to take guns in, or we're going to spy, or we're going to do something terrible to help the Nagas fight. There are so many, though, independence wars and guerrilla armies fighting in all the seven northeastern states of India that one can see why Delhi is so fearful. Tell me, Jonathan, about your own personal involvement with this story, because it goes back several generations, the, the glances in Nagaland. It's a funny thing. I mean, Nagaland to me was uh, a pure fairy tale as a child. Um, my father and my grandfather were very much sort of um, India hands in that old sense. They loved India and they really cared about it. They were military men. They weren't the sort of people that gloried in war. They didn't talk about war and action and fighting. That certainly wasn't part of my childhood. But they were the sort of very civilized men who spoke about flora, fauna, landscape, history, culture, they were fascinated by the tribes of people they had met. And I think they were very fascinated by the fact that being brought up, educated, trained, and having soldiered in India, that they had found this part of the world that was so different. And that to them, it was a magical place. So to me, learning from them as a boy um, in London, this seemed like, uh, as I say in the book, it was became like a secret garden story for me. And as the secret garden novel, of course, begins in India, that's appropriate. It's, it, it was a, also a lost kingdom. And as a child, we all have these stories in our heads. Well, I certainly did and I'm sure lots of boys and girls brought up in England at the time and before, over the previous hundred years, had the same stories. They're Kipling-esque stories. They're stories of magical places. And this was one of those magical places. And I suppose in the back of my mind, I always meant to go and visit this part of India. By the time I went, I'd already been to India several times, uh, to mainland India. I use the word mainland just as Nagas do, because that's how Nagas see it, and I do too these days. There's a mainland, the big triangle we think of India, from, from the Himalayas down to the bottom of the coast, south of Madras, and the Bay of Bengal. But India has 40 million indigenous people living 
around its edges who are forgotten. And I think that gradually curiosity got the better of me. And I had to go and see for myself and discover whether this lost kingdom really was just that, this secret garden really was just that. I wanted the key to open the door and go in and have a look. And I finally did. And, and tell me, my next question obviously must be, tell me what you discovered. Well, what I discovered was indeed, um, a, first of all, a secret garden. Absolutely. Because this is, uh, to use the modern jargon you see in uh, my own newspaper at The Guardian, biodiversity hotspot. <laughs> Makes me smile, that phrase. But actually, there's some truth in it. Because the idea of this place being crammed with wildlife, the bird life, the wildlife, the flowers... I, they are just prolific and exquisite. So you really are going to a beautiful part of the world. The tribes people themselves, away from the only couple of tourist zones that one can go to, really do lead a life where they have many festivals that they enjoy, and they really do dress up in costumes that are gorgeous and wonderful and special, and uh, they look like nobody else on earth. So there's a tremendous moment of drama, especially imagine this a young person from London finding their way out, walking by themselves in hills, into villages, many of which really hadn't seen anyone from the West, not a white person, for many years in many cases. And so it was, that for me was quite remarkable. So I felt in a way, just as my grandfather or great-grandfather's generation would have felt when they first visited these villages. And that, I think, was so, so exciting. And it took me a while, though, then, to start to learn to talk to people and to understand their history, and then to realise that their own history wasn't written down very well, and that it wasn't going to be an easy task to tell the story of the Naga people. Nonetheless, there is quite a long lineage of anthropological interest. And you, you write about several of those figures in, in the book, and many of them are very, are very serious, thoughtful, considered men who, who went there in order to understand the Naga culture. One thing I've discovered uh, travelling and talking in mainland India is there's often still a residual protest against the British presence in India. To my generation, it's history. I mean, very history one can reach out and touch because my father and grandfather and uncles and many other people were involved in that part of the world. But for my generation, of course, I, when I go to India, I hardly see myself as someone walking around in a solar topi and, you know, looking loftily down um, from my horse. I wander around as anybody else and enjoy meeting people. So what I couldn't help feeling that there was this terrible gap between one's experience of Nagaland and wanting to talk about it, particularly when one met Indians. It was the idea that somehow one was automatically disqualified from talking about this area coming from a certain background, that as soon as one mentioned Raj or Empire, doors closed, intellectual eyes shut down, um, you're not meant to talk about these things. Now, what, what kind of cult, because you, you've already said that the, the people of Nagaland are ethnically distinct from the, the broad mass of, of, of Indian peoples, what kind of culture did those early visitors from the West discover? Because, because they're, they're, they're different in terms of religion as well as language and, and, and many other customs too. The first British visitors, which were mostly, of course, military, although not necessarily uncivilized, many of them were pretty civilized, and they would go on to become some of the enlightened 
administrators for the area in later years who wrote about the tribes very well indeed. But I think they were utterly transfixed because what they found were tribes who were clearly highly distinctive and didn't appear to have come from anywhere that they could first recognize. In terms of religion, the people they met were 100% animist. They had their gods, their gods of nature, but they certainly had no particular inkling of of Christianity. Um, Whatever they had heard about Hinduism or other religions would have been very limited. Um, The people themselves are clearly not Indians, you know, in, except of course politically today they are citizens of the Indian state. They have to be, uh, they're forced to be. But these are people that, well, they belong to a group of people who are Tibetan Burmese, one could say. But then they're more interesting than that. That's not to say those people aren't interesting, but they're doubly interesting. Because when you first meet Naga people, I remember one of the first things I noticed in a, in a village on the Burmese border, very remote village, were women wearing these wonderful conch shells, necklaces. And these necklaces are colossal. They're conch shells, and conch shells are big things. And if you hang them around your neck, they're very heavy. But at the age of 20, I managed to think, hang on, we're a very, very long way from the sea indeed. Why are they wearing conch shells? Where do they come from? Well, of course, they come from the sea. Now, these have been traded along long trading paths from the sea, from the Burmese coast and elsewhere in Indonesia. Now, what's interesting is that after a long, long, long amount of study, initially by British district officers and anthropologists, and then by Indian anthropologists, and then today by Naga anthropologists and historians, it's gradually been discovered and believed this is not 100% guaranteed true because the history is uncertain, and that makes Naga land special, Naga Hill special. But it's believed the people had originally shifted down from southern China, from Hunan province, that they had trekked all the way through Burma, come out into the sea and occupied part of Indonesia, and had sailed back at some point, back up through Burma, and settled in the Naga Hills, which were great defendable space or place. So it's understandable, a beautiful place, uh, full of plenty of things to eat, and you can basically look after it until guns arrived. It was a place one could defend very easily. But the people brought back, so a culture that stretches from China to Indonesia, and those conch shells hanging around the necks were, of course, had very much come from an island culture, archipelago culture, out in Southeast Asia. And indeed, then I learned that many of the Naga customs had come the same way. So um, headhunting, which is a very controversial part of life in Nagaland and the Naga Hills, which may possibly, some people say, go on. I'm still not sure. I have no proof, um, but it could do. But these come from um, a culture that's a long way from the Himalayas. And so the people have a very, very intriguing, complex history, but it was a history they'd never written down because they didn't have... It wasn't, it wasn't a literate culture, and no writing until the 19th century. And so everything is folklore, hearsay, myth, and legend. And living in quite scattered communities in, in these hills and, and having different linguistic traditions, I was intrigued to, to read that the First World War reached all the way into the Naga Hills and actually played its part in f- beginning to forge some sense 
of the Naga as a, as a people rather than a, a collection of disparate peoples. The Naga tribes were certainly separate from one another. In many ways, they used to fight each other, and in a sense, they still do, unless they had a common cause or a common enemy. What was intriguing in the First World War, a large number of Naga warriors were taken out to France and Belgium, and they were employed by the Indian army working in France as messengers, couriers, and even as frontline soldiers. What this did was that members of different tribes were now working together, meeting together, and fighting a common enemy, which happened to be the Germans, but the point is that they were united in some way. When they came back after the First World War, back to the Naga Hills, they suddenly realised they had something truly in common, or they could bond together to fight, or they could bond together with a common cause, or in other words, they could start to become a nation for the first time. That was certainly encouraged by the British in many ways. Um, the British wanted the Nagas to be, you know, to, uh, to look after themselves. And in that sense, they started to, and they became then, started to reflect on who they were. And at the same time, really, writing was becoming established. And so you start to get Nagas telling their own stories in ways that we recognize today in written forms and developing a sense of nationhood rather than being disparate tribes who happen to share the same hills. So jumping forward several decades, when, when in 1963 the Indians created the Naga state, that was not an entirely benign act on their part, was it? India created the Naga state in 1963 as a form of defense against invasion probably the Chinese. That's what they were worried about. The Chinese had, of course, tried to invade India in 1962. There was a great fear of that. And there was also a fear of insurrection because the Nagas had been fighting very hard against the Indians by that time, solidly for 10 years. Um, the number of deaths on both sides was very high amongst the Indian army and amongst the Naga tribes. It was a brutal, bloody, forgotten war. That war, by the way, still goes on in less dramatic um, terms and less, thank heavens, fewer, far fewer deaths day to day or year by year. But in the 1950s and into the 60s, the number of deaths was huge. The amount of destruction was vast. That's why India wanted to control it. They were going to stamp out any form of rebellion. They wanted Nagaland as a buffer zone, and they were going were determined to make that happen. And that's in the end why they said this is going to be not an area we administer with soldiers. It's a state. And today you describe the, the situation, the tensions. I think you say, at best, they're an uncertain stalemate, and at worst, they're a powder keg. Tell, tell me, tell me in, in, in what way. The Nagas, whoever they are, want to be independent from India. Now, Nagas, since the Second World War, and certainly since the 1960s, have moved on in many ways, or one has to be careful, a certain number of Nagas have moved on. So today you will find Naga professors of literature in the United States, you will find Naga doctors in Canada, you will find Naga writers in Norway, you will find them winning prizes when they're writing great books and stories and poems. No, no, they've moved on, or at least a small percentage. Many Nagas, though, live in very poor conditions indeed. Well, one has to be careful, poor in conventional terms, but they live in monetary terms. But many of those living stretch along the Burmese border of Nagaland live a very ancient life indeed. They also like that life, and 
although poor, it is very beautiful. One must always be careful um, not to over-romanticize, but the point is people are still living free and independent lives the way they always did, and they value that. And equally, of course, many people living there would love it if their son and daughter went on to become a doctor in Canada, or even in Delhi, perhaps less so in Delhi. So Nagas, yes, Nagas have certainly, they've moved on, and they will move on, but they're Whenever you sit and talk for long enough to anyone from the Naga Hills, they bond together in their determination to create an independent land. They call it Nagalim, which is like a sort of greater Naga land, because Nagas live across national boundaries. They live in Burma, and they live in some of the other seven sister states. So they want a land that's theirs. It's a bit like, um, if you think of, say, for example, the Kurds, who you know, live on top of Iraq and Turkey and famously have been without their own state <laughs> pretty much forever. And they dearly would like one. And in fact, if they did have one, perhaps a lot of conflict in that area would stop. Perhaps if the Nagas had their own state, the one they really want, conflict would stop too. And the Nagas are living in a land which is rich in natural resources, not, not least mm. oil. But we know that resources can be a, a curse as well as a blessing, don't we? Oil's a terrible curse for many countries. Uh, it's proved to be around the world because, sadly, you, me and others, we want the oil really to run our planes, our trains, our industry and to lead our luxurious lifestyles. And that's terribly dangerous, especially for very poor countries who don't have control over their oil supplier production. And certainly the state of Nagaland does not have control. Uh, most industry in Nagaland is controlled by big Indian, often government, sometimes government enterprises mixed with private enterprise, and they control and own those really. So the Nagas don't have the oil in the sense that people in Abu Dhabi do, or they haven't got it to spend on what they want to spend. So oil hasn't made them rich, but oil could be dangerous for them. Let me ask you, Jonathan, finally, just to, to look ahead a few years. I mean, there are obviously positive things on the, on the horizon, ways in which Nagaland could develop. It could become a, you know, a, a well-managed eco-tourism destination. For, but, I mean, how optimistic do you feel about the future for, for, for the Naga? I can see a Nagalim, this, this new dreamt-of nation-state for the Naga tribes working. It really could, because the place is beautiful, it does have enough uh, natural resources, and today there are enough, of course, educated Nagas to make life work. And they've been learning too about many things. They're not angels, you know, because they have indulged over many generations in slash and burn agriculture. And that is something they're learning. They've had to learn about, like we have had to learn about looking after our farms and looking looking after our landscapes. And they are doing that. But their trouble is, it's that nightmare location of Nagaland. The strange thing is, is that it's so unknown, Nagaland, and yet it's so important politically. And particularly if you're a politician in Delhi, you're not going to let it go. Because one, indeed, there's certain resources there you want. But more importantly, it's a great fear for Indian politicians. It has been where India has been under this great threat of invasion by the Japanese in 1944, by the Chinese in 1962. And I can't see... For many generations, India letting Nagaland go. Jonathan Glancy. Nagaland, a journey to India's forgotten frontier, is available now in hardback. 
That's all from this edition of the Faber podcast. But there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed this programme, do sign up for the monthly Faber podcast by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.